If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and if you just wave to them, they'll put a Bible in your hand. It'll be marked to our passage this morning for your convenience. And then please, if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. God wants everyone to know His Word, and it will change our lives if we uh, allow that to happen. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Verse 9, speaking of Jesus, that was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right or the authority to become children of God, to those who believe in his name who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for, as we already have both in prayer with Pastor Allen leading us and the worship team, thank You so much for your indescribable gift in the person of Jesus into human history and what that birth uh, launched and what it ended up providing for each and every one of us. Those of us who are Christians that stand before you today, we thank you, Lord, for the life that we have the privilege of living uh, the, the quality of life, the excellence of it, not always easy, but, Lord, having meaning and purpose and freedom and joy and peace that we would never otherwise know. And we pray, Lord, not only for your peace and your joy and your blessing to be upon us and this church today, but all around uh, this community where your people are gathering. And then we pray for ble- peace and joy for your people gathering all around the world, so much of it in areas in which it's very dangerous to identify as a Christian. We pray you bless our brethren today. We pray as well for each man or woman that you love so much that stands before you in this room this morning who has not yet received your gift of salvation, that today something by your Spirit would click for them And that wonderful surrender would occur and they would receive the gift that the Christmas season is all about, and that is the salvation found in your Son. We pray for that miracle to occur in each one of their lives as well. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. The Christmas season, of course, is a time that's set aside to celebrate the most significant birth in human history, uh, the birth of Jesus himself, born into the world, into human history, not merely to be born, uh, but ultimately to provide for mankind's most desperate need, and that is for salvation. 
and for the forgiveness of sins. And He came into this world ultimately to die for our sins in order to allow us to begin the single great thing that each and every one of us has been created for, and that is a personal relationship with God made available to us through Jesus' death, His burial, and His resurrection. There are many, many things about the incarnation or the uh, birth of Jesus and His introduction into human history as our Savior that impact me and I know also impacts you. But perhaps the most, the single greatest thing on an emotional level, on a worship level, is uh, to me year in and year out that rises to uh, the, the surface and the top above everything else is the immense sacrifice that is represented in this uh, birth. Long before the cross, long before the death, burial, and resurrection, the sacrifice that is represented in the incarnation uh, itself. I think that of all of the Gospels, John gives us the greatest insights into the sacrifice by beginning his gospel with a description of exactly who and what Jesus was and is, exactly who was this babe that was born into human history now some 2,000 years ago. I think that very often, certainly preachers uh, do this as Christmas time comes and we're looking for, okay, what do you want us to speak, Lord, related to this? The, it's so multifaceted. What do you want us to focus on? And we always begin by reading and rereading the account of Jesus' birth in Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel, and we can tend to think that uh, Mark and John have really nothing to add, nothing to say, as if they almost skip over the birth of Christ and, and have nothing to add uh, to that uh, at all, uh, and, uh, and, and thinking that of John's account, but it isn't true at all. You notice John's description of this child who was born, his description of John, as we've read here. In verse 1, he describes, uh, declares to us that Jesus was and is eternal. In verse 1, we're told that in the beginning was the Word. Uh, from verse 14, we know that the Word here refers to uh, Jesus. And when the heavens and the earth were created, as is recorded in the very first verse in the Bible, speaking of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, Jesus already was. He, had al he already existed. In other words, before the beginning began, He already existed in eternity. Jesus was not created. He didn't begin His existence 2,000 years ago at the moment of His miraculous conception in the womb of Mary by the Holy Spirit. He didn't begin His existence at the moment of His birth in the city of Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. You and I, we begin our uh, existence at the moment of conception. Jesus did not. His existence, John tells us, stretches all the way back into an infinite eternity. He never began. He has always been. He has always existed. Jesus is as eternal as God the Father. And Jesus affirmed this uh, truth himself when he declared to the Jewish religious leaders of his day, saying, Verily, verily, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus declared in the very first chapter 
of the book of Revelation to this very apostle John. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who was and who is and who is to come, the Almighty. The apostle Paul wrote to the church at Colossae of Jesus and said, He is before all things, and in him all things consist. And John wants us to know that this is the one who was born into this world in the city of Bethlehem. He further describes him there in that he was with God in verse 1. In verse 2, that he was in the beginning with God. And the word with there in the original language, it means literally face to face. And that Greek word that's used in the original language is intended to describe uh, the closeness of relationship with the Father, the intimacy of the relationship between the Father and the Son, and that they had enjoyed for all of eternity. And it was this intimacy that both the Father and the Son were willing to sacrifice on some mystery-shrouded level in Jesus' coming into the world to provide us with salvation and the forgiveness of sins. And to me, two of the most awesome and, and haunting cries of Jesus in the course of his public life and his public ministry were uttered in the light of this disruption of the in eternal intimacy on some level between God the Father and God the Son. First concerning the incarnation itself, Jesus expressed in his prayer to the Father on the night before his crucifixion, recorded in John chapter 17, and he declared to the Father there, I have glorified you on the earth, I have finished the work that you have given me to do, and now, O Father, give me, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And then, while hanging upon the cross itself, Jesus cried out with a loud voice to the Father, and he declared, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And Father and Son had never ceased to be fully and inseparably one. But again, some indescribable something happened in his incarnation and in his crucifixion that had never happened before and will never happen again. Notice too in verse 1 that the, John declares Jesus to be divine, to be God, and the word was God is how he puts it. Not only that he was with God, but that he is God and he was God. And you cannot have a stronger statement to declare the deity of Jesus at all than, than what John declares of Jesus uh, here. One of the most famous Christmas verses in the Old Testament declares the very same thing of Jesus, declaring that when the Messiah came into the world, he would be divine that he would be God in human flesh. And that verse famously, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, 
for unto us a child is born, but not merely a child. He goes on and declares, for unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so he's not just a child, but a son. And not merely a son, but the very son of God. Not just a child, but the child will be mighty God, Isaiah prophesied. And so he was and so he is. And it was God in human flesh that was born into the world in Bethlehem who then died for our sins on the cross at Calvary. Further still in verse 3, John tells us that he is the creator of all things. And in declaring Jesus to be the creator of all things, he's telling us two things at once. Number one, that he created everything that was made. If something is made, he made it. And then by virtue of the fact that he has brought everything that is made into existence, that he himself cannot and is not created. The Bible teaches that God the Father created the world through the Son. Paul wrote again to the church at Colossae, For by Him, speaking of Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him. The writer of the book of Hebrews wrote, God who at various times and in different ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Everything that we can see with both the microscope and with the telescope and beyond was created by Jesus. And John wants us to know, in his addition, in the revelation that he brings to that birth 2,000 years ago, he wants us to know from the first chapter of his gospel that it, that is who was born on that Christmas day. But he hasn't stopped yet. Further still, John declares in verses 4 and 5, that in him was life. And this verse uh, opens with the Greek preposition en. It's the equivalent of our word in. In other words, John is declaring that Jesus is the source of a spiritual life that cannot be found anywhere else but in him. And only he can give it because only he has it. And Jesus is not one among many who can give spiritual life, who can give life as God intends it, abundant life, eternal life. He is the only one, John says, who can do so. And he alone is the true light, the source of all spiritual life and light. And thus the Holy Spirit declares of him by John himself again, but now in his first epistle, 1 John 5.11, and this is the testimony that God has given us, uh, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And the spiritual and eternal life and light that we enjoy every day as Christians 
knowing God personally, being able to pray to him, being led by him, receiving the power of the Holy Spirit, the revelation of the Holy Spirit, and so forth. We possess these things because of the birth of that baby into human history. And again, John informs us in verses 14 and 18, that this is the child, this is who was born into the world as a babe in Bethlehem some 2,000 years ago, who in the words of verse 14, became flesh and dwelt among us. And he tells us why in verse 14, that we might behold his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That is who left heaven and took on a human body, a tent, a tabernacle to come here so that we might know what God is like and in order to provide a way of salvation for us. Karen and I have a very small nativity scene that we put out uh, each Christmas. And uh, I don't know uh, what it cost us originally so many years ago, probably 20 bucks or something. But now we've got a history with it. But it's a very simple uh, nativity scene consisting of Joseph and Mary, a single shepherd, two sheep, and then Jesus. And each year as we come around to this time of the year, I always spend a little bit of time just simply looking at that representation, that very simple representation of that incredible event that occurred some 2,000 years ago. And I take time to look at that tiny infant lying uh, in the manger. And as I look at him lying in that manger, represented in, in this way, I always marvel at who and what he already was, though in the form of a baby, though just a babe in that manger. The marvel of all of this, Charles Wesley himself encapsulated in his famous Christmas hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And you might be familiar with that portion of the one verse where he declares of Jesus, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. But our marveling concerning his birth, it doesn't stop there. Yes, we marvel at who and what that child born in Bethlehem was, who and what he was, but then we also stop this morning to consider what he left of heaven's glory in order to enter into this very fallen world, this very messy world, in order to save us from our sins. To realize this morning, not merely that he came, but to stop and to consider what he left in order to come. I have never been to heaven, though I am very much on my way there. This fallen world is all I have ever known. All I will ever know of heaven and earth is what it will be like one day to leave the earth and go to heaven. I will never experience what Jesus did. And that is what it is like to leave heaven 
and come to this earth to leave heaven in all of its glory, all of its sights, its sounds, its colors, all of its purity, all of its holiness, all of its sinlessness, its, its peace, its perfection, a heaven possessing a glory and a beauty and a holiness that renders even the most godly and the most eloquent of men almost speechless. The prophet Isaiah, upon not seeing it, but just merely seeing a vision of it, wrote in Isaiah chapter 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And the one cried to the another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. And then I said, Woe is me, for I am undone. The Apostle Paul saw the glory of heaven, and 14 years later, he was still trying to figure out a way to put it into words. As he wrote to the church at Corinth, I know a man, speaking of himself, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows. And such a one was caught up into the third heaven. I know such a man, he repeats himself, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which it is not lawful for a man uh, to utter. Paul said, I'd love to describe it to you. But not only can I not describe, can I not put in human words what I saw, I can't even attempt to formulate in human words what I heard in that realm. And then the Apostle John himself declared his reaction upon seeing the risen Jesus restored to heaven in all of its holiness and all of its glory. In Revelation chapter 1, when John sees him, John, the one who probably experienced the most intimacy of all with Jesus, the greatest familiarity, being the youngest of all of the apostles, and when he sees Jesus, once again in all of his glory and in the context of heaven, he said, I fell down at his feet as dead. And each one, when confronted with this great gulf in terms of holiness and purity and the quality of life that exists between heaven and this fallen world, it left them, in their own words, undone and speechless and as dead. And it was Jesus himself who has given us, I think, the greatest hint at the sacrifice that was involved in leaving heaven to even be born into this world, to say nothing of the cross and the humiliation of it. Again, this most haunting line from his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, as I spoke of it earlier, but once again, and now, O Father, he said, Glorify me together with yourself, with the glory I had with you 
before the world was. And on that night before the crucifixion, he longed for the glory of heaven again, but only after he had paid the price for us to be able to go there as well, even as we've sung about here this morning. And in the light of who and what he was and is, I know I am and I have no doubt that you are as well, humbled and awed at the sacrifice that is represented in the incarnation alone, independent of even his death upon the cross for our sins that would come some 33 years later. The Apostle Paul, interestingly enough, he had a sense of awe and produced a sense of worship within him. Not merely the cross, but he was in awe of the fact that Jesus, the Jesus who he knew, and knowing him as well as he did this side of glory, would be willing to come into the fallenness of this world. And he put it this way in his, the second chapter of his letter to the church at Philippi. Describing he, Jesus, he said, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of men. He takes time to camp upon the sacrifice that was involved in the incarnation before he ever moves on to speak of the cross, as he does in the next verse, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Paul would later write, also write, to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, but you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, speaking of his heavenly portion, Yet for your sakes he became poor, that through his poverty uh, we uh, might become rich. I don't think there's any way to describe it or to adequately put it into words. What must have been this uh, crossing, this great gulf from the glory and the perfection of heaven to come into the messiness and fallenness of this world. I don't know how to try and put it into words. I remember my first trip to India a few decades now ago, and India was a very different place then than it is now. Uh, We were there for some three weeks and only could find a phone to call home a single time, a little more uh, remote uh, and unconnected than it is now. And upon returning from that first trip, Uh, to India, uh, coming home, people would ask me what it was like. And I had the hardest time trying to describe what India uh, was like because it was so different from the United States. In order to describe another place, you usually have to begin uh, with a reference point that's common to both places something that you can describe with the words, well, you know, uh, it's kind of uh, like uh, this in our country, only more so or less so uh, or, or a little bit different in this regard and so forth. But you need a point of reference to even attempt to begin the description. 
But the two places at the time were so very different, there was no common reference point with which to even try to begin a a description of what India was like from some reference point of the United States of America. And I think that so it is with any attempt to try and describe what it might have been like for Jesus to leave the glory of heaven and to be born into this world. We can attempt to explore it and understand it on some level, but I don't think we'll ever, ever scratch the surface. If you were to take a man or woman who is a billionaire, uh, having lived all of their life in indescribable affluence, uh, knowing nothing but the finest food, the finest homes, the finest education, the finest environments, living all of their life in a, a mansion situated on 1,500 acres of land or in the finest penthouse in uh, Manhattan. And by the way, one of those re- recently sold for $200 million. And if this was to be their portion and, and to live in this environment all of the days uh, of their life and then to lick, lift them up out of the privilege of that environment and then to plunk them down into one of the worst slums in Calcutta or Bombay, even that would hardly scratch the surface in an attempt to describe the gap between the quality of life and the glory of heaven as opposed to the quality of life in this very fallen place called planet Earth. And not only speaking physically, but emotionally, in terms of morally, in terms of spiritually, to leave such purity in the one environment for the impurity of the other. An amazing uh, sacrifice made by Jesus in his incarnation. Then finally to spend a moment or two this morning to consider the motivation behind this kind of a sacrifice and to realize that Jesus came into this world not ultimately to a hero's welcome. He ought to have received that, but he didn't receive that. Not to be loved, not to be appreciated, not to be adored, not to receive what was his eternal portion in heaven, uninterrupted in heaven, angels that number in the uncountable millions. His portion was the honor and the glory and the worship and the praise unending that he was due as their creator as well. And that was his portion from eternity past and even before there were uh, angels. And so he comes into the world, not to a hero's welcome, not to be loved and appreciated and adored in the way that he was in heaven and deservedly adored there, not as Charles Wesley wrote in that same hymn, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. But John tells us instead he came into the world largely to be, uh, to be largely rejected by men. And he makes mention of it, you notice in verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. This is unimaginable disrespect, unimaginable humiliation extended to him uh, at the time of his birth, but then continued through the entire 33 and a half years of his life, unimaginable from the perspective of heaven. 
The prophet Isaiah wrote of this, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3, he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own. Uh, or rather, the, I mean, again, I'm, excuse me, I read John again, but Isaiah chapter 53, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. And yet he came, and yet he came. Why? In verse 12, so that others people like you and me, would have the opportunity to go against the stream of not only human history, but even of our current age and the heart of the average person of the world today, and so that we would have the opportunity to receive, believe in Him for salvation, receive Him into our hearts, and become, as John describes it there, His children, and to be born again spiritually. But what was behind that? What was behind the incarnation and the provision of the salvation at the, the, the uh, apex of Jesus' ministry and his death and his burial and his resurrection? We know that he did it. We recognize the sacrifice behind it. But why? What was the motive behind the sacrifice? What could possibly motivate him to do all of this? What in the very heart of God could be greater than all of the ugliness of the world, greater than the ugliness of its sin, greater than the ugliness of my sin? And the answer, of course, is the love of God. And this is very same Apostle John uh, makes this clear in his first epistle, 1 John chapter 4. In this the love of God was manifest toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us. That's the wonder. And sent His Son to us to be propitiation for our sins. And I'll tell you, I have to confess to you, and I hope I'm not alone in it, but maybe I am, but I'll confess it nonetheless that there is nothing in the whole world that silences me more fully or mystifies me more fully in all of the world than the love of God. The righteousness of God makes perfect sense to me. The holiness of God makes perfect sense to me. Uh, the perfection of God makes complete sense to me. Though each of these are only understood to a degree by any of us. There's mystery that enshrouds all of it, but I think I have a fairly firm grasp upon it. But the love of God for me, for you, for mankind, a love that is greater than all of our sin, all that we've ever done or ever thought, all of our idolatry, all of our weaknesses, all of our rebellion, all of our fallenness, all of our brokenness, a love that is willing to pay this kind of personal price that we talked about here this morning in the expression of it. And I'll tell you, I fear that I am no closer to making a dent in understanding the love of God 
Now, after all of these years, than I did 37 years ago as a new Christian. I cannot get my mind, even remotely begin to get my mind around the love of God. But perhaps it isn't intended to be understood supremely as much as it's simply there to be accepted. And I think to then allow it to produce an awe and a thanksgiving in us that by the Holy Spirit that can only be expressed in worship and praise being offered to God for His love. And I think to then join as we celebrate His birth this morning to join that heavenly host who broke out in worship upon the angel's announcement to the shepherds keeping watch over their flock by night saying, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth, goodwill toward men. And this morning we celebrate, if we have nothing else to celebrate, and say, praise the Lord that there is something greater than our guilt and all of the universe, and something greater than our sin, and it is the love of God expressed in the provision of a Savior. I think one of the things that we fight and uh, we can't really help it uh, as Americans. But one of the blessings that we have uh, as Americans is this Christian heritage uh, that we have. And it is an absolute blessing. Uh, but there can be a curse associated with it, and it's the curse of familiarity. And so often I think you talk about the average person, and it may be you this morning, not yet a Christian. And... And because of this heritage that we have, a Christian heritage in the United States of America, the God that we've been introduced to over and over and over again, the God who forms our framework for what God is like as the God who is described in the Bible, uh, the, uh, God the Father, and then uh, God the Son. And so I think what happens ultimately over time is that we can take for granted in our culture that God is love. And we just think to ourselves, well, of course He is. Yes, He ought to be that. And we even take upon ourselves the thing that we can so often dislike so much about modern culture in the sense of entitlement. But you know, when God didn't need to be a God of love, he could be a God of wrath. He could be a God uh, of anger, a cruel, vengeful, perpetually angry God that people have worshipped all through the ages, and they still do. But we have this expectation that God, and in, in, in this understanding of Him being a, a God of love, but He didn't need to be that. And to never ever lose our awe of the fact that He is a God of love and that He is the one that we found at the end of our search. I never take it for granted. I'm always thankful for it. I'm thankful that the creator of the heavens and the earth and the one who made me and the one that, you know, you can't find meaning and purpose without in terms of life that at the end of that search that I also discovered, and you did as well, that he was also a God of love. So much to be thankful for. 
If you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian and you'd like to become a Christian, trust in Jesus' offer of salvation to you this morning. And, And it is that offer, that present of salvation that he extends to you, like any gift, it does you no good and unless it's received. And that's why in the language of, of Christmas, John describes it in verse 12 of, uh, of, uh, of this chapter that we're looking at in his gospel this morning. And he said, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. And we receive God's salvation and the forgiveness of sins and begin a relationship with God by simply turning from our own direction in life or in our own self-will and turning to God and putting our faith in His Son and receiving the forgiveness of sins and then beginning that relationship with God that we've been created for. And, and then all of this, uh, this relationship that we'll enjoy all of this life and then all of the life to come. And if that's something that is not a part of your life and you'd like to receive from God himself and it's more real than the chairs that you're sitting in this morning and there's a whole room of people here today that can testify to that fact. There will be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service who would love to pray with you to begin that relationship with God this morning and receiving the gift of salvation. For those of us who already know the Lord and love the Lord, I'd like us to close this morning by giving him thanks for the three, in, in line with the three points of our sermon this morning. Number one, for who he is. And then number two, for the sacrifice involved in not only the cross, but in the incarnation. And then to give him thanks for the love uh, of his heart that is behind all of it the love that is greater than who and what we are and we were and all of our sin, a God that loved us so much that he sent his only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so in that spirit of thanksgiving and worship and praise to him, I'd like to invite the worship team back out and they're going to close us with two Christmas songs. Oh, come all ye faithful. And then the Christmas uh, hymn that I've referenced twice in the sermon uh, by Charles Wesley, Hark the Herald Angels Sing.